Burst and meteors fall 
Hi everyone, I want to welcome you all again to class number two of Spiritual Renewal Week, including those of us who are joining online. And the topic for today's class is Chakras, Portals to uh, Higher Consciousness. And uh, myself, Brahmachari Sagar, Nayaswami Gyandev, and Jitendra will do this particular talk. And when this uh, subject was offered to us, uh, Naswami Jyotish also added a couple lines about what he wanted us to try cover in this class. And he said, this is not meant to be so much a course on the chakras as it is an opportunity to have a systematic way to delineate the forces that work for and against us as we try to uplift our consciousness. And so I, going first, will talk more about the general principles of why and how to work with the chakras and the kundalini. Uh, Jitendra will go next and talk about the heart chakra, which is pivotal in this journey. And uh, Swami Gyandev will talk about harmonizing the chakras and living from the spiritual eye or living super consciously. We'll each go for about 25 minutes. And so 
for my part, uh, I want to give three good reasons why we want to work with our chakras and work with the kundalini. Number one is if we want to uplift ourselves, which is the theme for this uh, spiritual renewal week, we can't do it one fault at a time. There's too many to work with. And it says so in the Bhagavad Gita, when talking about the enemy's army, there is a line there that says, their forces are, are innumerable, numberless. Ours are limited. And so, what we want to do is find a universal way of working so that we can overcome all our enemies with one fell swoop. And as I was thinking about this, I had told myself, uh, I went on a road trip with uh, Nayaswami Jaya and Brahmachari Aditya to see Yellowstone. And I told myself, well, I'll glean inspiration from that trip. And then I'll have something nice to share. But Yellowstone was flooded and closed. And I ended up getting COVID, so, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm recovered from now. But I had to keep my words. Swami said, if you uh, say something, you have to keep your words. So with COVID, I've been realizing, if you have been following the news, that the scientists are realizing that you can't go after it strain by strain. You need a vaccine that universally target, targets all variants. And ideally, they say we want a vaccine that will uh, target all coronaviruses. Now, whether that happens or not, the principle is important. And if, well, some people might not like the vaccine analogy, so I have two more analogies. <laughs> How many have seen Avengers Infinity Wars? <laughs> the villain, Thanos, wants to depopulate half the universe. And he tries to go at one planet at a time. And he realizes, can't do that. Too many planets. And so he wants the infinity stone, so he can do it with a one single snap of his fingers. And if that's not convincing enough, we'll take Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Sri Sauron doesn't create the one ring because he wants a nice ring on his finger. He realizes he has too many enemies, men, dwarves, elves, and he can't go after them one at a time. And so why does he force the one ring? One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them. Now that is the same principle that makes it important to work with the chakras and the kundalini. And the proof of that is in an unusual location, the Old Testament. And there, Moses, says, all these serpents of delusion are biting me. What the heck do I do? And God says, well, raise thee the fiery serpent. And as soon as you do that, no other serpents of delusion will be able to bite you. And so that is the reason when Yogananda was asked, was Moses a master? He gave one criteria, yes, because he had raised the serpent. And this raising the energy up the spine, working with the chakras, number one, is the universal way to overcome all flaws. If we do this, we become a master. If we don't do this, you know, I have a guru, I have a teachings, I have right attitude, I hope, uh, most of the times, but I haven't raised the serpent, and so I'm not yet self-realized. Now there's another reason, I said I would give three good reasons. The second reason is when we want to uplift ourselves, we have to draw on superconscious forces. Problems are not solved 
on the level which create the problems. And if we keep working with the flaws on the level of the flaws, we see that we don't get the final victory. The uh, Hydra example in analogy in the Greek myth legend that explains that also. But I want to share another inspiration that luckily came to me yesterday because I was thinking about these things. And you might find what I'm going to say a little deflating because it reduces the importance of what we can do unless we take it with the right perspective. Most people, especially in the US, which is a very idealistic country, and I say this positively, want to change the world for the better. You know, we want a system where dharma predominates. We want law courts which give the right decisions. Whatever they are, everybody has their version of right decisions. We want a government which does the right things. But overall, what we want is righteousness. And we feel, generally, that the more we do things right, get the right systems, agitate, um, promote right ideas, we will uplift the world. But that is true, but only to a certain extent. How much dharma uh, dominates this planet is determined by its position in the galaxy. This is the theory of the yugas. The closer it's to the galactic center, Sri Yukteswar said the galactic center is a powerhouse of spiritual vibration. The closer it is to the galactic center, naturally, you don't need to do much. Dharma predominates. The farther away it goes because the uh, solar system moves closer and farther away from the galactic center. The farther it moves, the lower yugas descend. The very reason Ananda can function here and Kriya Yoga has been introduced is because we are in a higher age of Dwapara Yuga. 200 years, 400 years ago, even Babaji didn't try to do that. And the reason I am saying this is, you know, and this is the reason, if it was just human effort, once we reach Satya Yuga, the highest age, we would never fall. But as soon as the solar system starts moving away from the galactic center, naturally dharma starts declining. Now there is a reason I'm saying this, and it's not deflating. It's that what's the principle that's true in the universe is true within ourselves also. Our galactic center, the powerhouse of spiritual power is the brain. The closer our consciousness is to the brain up the spine, naturally we live in an uplifted way. Naturally we take the right decisions. Naturally we are inspired and in tune with the divine guidance and naturally we start becoming self-realized. The farther away we are from this galactic center within ourselves, the more we are caught up in delusion. This is the law. But the good thing is now, with the solar system and Earth, there is no way to push it to spend more time closer to the galactic center. And there's no way to say, stay at the galactic center forever, closest to the galactic center. It follows its own rhythms. But we, by our own self-effort, can hasten the journey. We can come closer to our brain, higher up in the spine. And with the right effort, we can stay there. And that is the reason to work with these chakras, to work with the kundalini. Naturally, as we do that, 
we see that everything starts falling into place. This is why uh, in the Christian Bible there's a fascinating line. Jesus says, I, I saw Satan as an angel descending from heaven. And Yogananda explained that what Jesus was saying was heaven is primarily the brain. When life force descends from there and pulls our consciousness down the spine out into the world, we are under the influence of Satan or duality. We forget our true nature. We forget how to act in tune with dharma. But as soon as life force is raised back again, we remember all that had been lost. And I want to read what Yogananda says here. When all the energy from the senses is centered in the brain by meditation, the devotee is spoken of as having attained heaven. By, but most people who do not meditate find their consciousness flowing down with satanic lightning or the life force f falling from the heavenly region, region of the brain down to the region of the senses. And so this is the reason we want to be in heaven, we want to uplift ourselves, the best way to do it is by raising the energy up the spine. The closer we are to the brain, our state of consciousness in the spine, the more we live in harmony with everything. Now, uh, these things can be understood and misunderstood, and I want to give you a fun analogy about, uh, just for the sake of uh, some fun. Um, you know, because I said the higher up we are in the spine, the more we have unerring guidance and we live in harmony with divine laws. And this happened in Mumbai, where I was hosting Jyotish and Devi, and they had just done a big public lecture. And after that, to celebrate, we had gone to a really nice place to have dinner. It was an all-you-can-eat buffet. And I call buffets all you can overeat because that's what I end up doing most of the time. And sure enough, here, I think each of us, because it had been a good class, the audience had been very receptive. So we were celebrating with Divine Mother, as Swami used to do. And we probably had had our hearts filled. But there were 20 kinds of des desserts. And so I was trying to tell you, Tishina, don't you want one more dessert? You haven't tried that one. And uh, Jyotish ruefully said, he thought about it, and then he says, I still remember it, he says, my tongue says yes, but my stomach says no. And I immediately said, follow the tongue, it's higher up in the spine. <laughs> it's closer to the brain, the stomach's down here. You know, uh, but unfortunately for me, one of the other monks, Devendra, a uh, very good friend was there. And he immediately, and he knew these teachings better than me. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 the tongue might be higher, but the chakra that governs the sense of taste is the second chakra, which is true, and it's lower in the spine than the stomach. So you have to follow the stomach. <laughs> but having said that, uh, you know, the way to be uplifted on the spiritual journey is to be happy and cheerful and to enjoy that journey. That's why we have uh, anybody who shares that ananda, if he can't share joy, Swami used to say you have to give people the bliss and that doesn't mean the jokes, but the joy. Then half of the power of the spiritual search is lost because we start being deflated. But anyway, coming back, uh, so the higher up we are in the spine, the easier it is to naturally follow the dictates of karma, of, of dharma, not of karma. We don't want to follow the dictates of karma. We want to follow the dictates of dharma. 
And then I said there's three reasons, so I want to give you a third reason also. It's that as we go up the spine, we gain spiritual power. This journey, we think that it's always going to be drudgery. We are going to struggle to act according to dharma. We are going to struggle to meditate deeply. It's always going to be a struggle. Yes, if we don't have strong allies, but there is a way to traverse this path so that we become strengthened along our journey. And that happens if we work with the chakras. And another example which I'll give, because this is inspired by driving here in the US, is, you know, all of us, how many, we can do a show of hands, how many people here would love to just cruise through the spiritual life, have deep meditations, always act according to the dictates of dharma, make it sort of effortless? Am I the only one? All of us, all of us. And we think it's impossible. It is not. Where can you cruise? It's on the freeway, you know, uh, because we drove 2,000 miles. If I try to cruise on these winding roads with speed bumps, with traffic, with traffic lights, and if these are the only roads I have seen, I wouldn't believe that one can cruise along, relaxed at a speed of 80 or 90 miles an hour <laughs> without any stress. But it's when you see the freeway, then you realize it's possible. And what's the freeway, the highway to self-realization? It is the spine. When we are there, superconscious forces help us on our journey to self-realization. It's not drudgery. Deep meditation becomes natural, more and more. Living according to dharma becomes natural. But we have to get onto that highway. We can't be on the bypaths. This is why the techniques of Kriya Yoga, which bring life force back into the spine. The spine is the battlefield. That's the Kurukshetra, where you see the two uh, opposing enemies, uh, army, enemy armies arranged for battle. So the surface of the body is Kurukshetra, where the Kurus or Kauravas dwell. Kshetra means the field. The brain is Dharmakshetra, where the Dharma resides. And this is the middle ground. We drive our chariot in between the two armies in the Bhagavad Gita. That is, we center our consciousness in the spine. And when we are there, we see, well, now we can go upwards or we can go outwards. And we have the power to do either of these things. That's why centralizing our consciousness in the spine is so very important. If we analyze the Pandava army, the good army in the Bhagavad Gita, and you think about most of the warriors, and if, especially if you think about the warriors who slay the primary opponents, enemies, the Kaurava army generals, they are all qualities that are awakened by the Kundalini. And I want to talk about those because one of the things we want to talk about is the forces that are on our side as we make this journey towards self-realization. And, uh, well, first, what happens when the life force rises up the spine? You know, in the Bhagavad Gita, I must say, Kundalini is represented by Draupadi, a princess, who marries five brothers, the Pandavas. Those five brothers actually represent the chakras. They are not, uh, she's not really in, uh, in actual life uh, married to five brothers. So when the life force starts withdrawing, it starts opening each of the chakras. When the lowest chakra is opened, we gain the power to practice yamas. 
It doesn't remain a drudgery work. When the second chakra is opened, we gain the power to practice niyamas. When the third chakra, Arjuna, is opened, we gain the power of asana, sitting steady with steady body and mind in deep meditation. We don't keep fidgeting. When the fourth chakra, the heart chakra, is opened, bhima, what we gain is the power of pranayama, life force control. And then once you have that power, Yogananda said, you have the power to really dive deep on the spiritual path. When the throat chakra is open, this is Yudhishthira, we gain the power of uh, being calm in psychological battle. And we gain the power of interiorization, pratyahara. When we have these powers aligned with us, meditation, following the dictates of wisdom become easier. But that's not all. Because quite literally, you know, when uh, a marriage happens, then you have progeny. And so Draupadi, as she marries each of these Pandavas, she produces children. They are called Draupadeyas, children of Draupadi. And those are the lights and the sounds associated with each chakra. And the sounds were talked about in that wonderful uh, song, the Om song that uh, the musicians played. But those sounds are probably one of the most important warriors on the battle to self-realization. We have two entire techniques, the second Kriya and the Om technique that work primarily with those sounds and those lights. So don't think those are minor characters. One of the easiest ways to self-realization is to tune into the successive sounds of the chakras. Many people ask, in meditation, after I have practiced Kriya, what do I do? That question is rendered null and void once the inner sounds can be heard, because then you relax and enjoy those inner sounds. And those inner sounds naturally take us deeper. Like I said, it becomes less of an effort, more of an enjoyment. And so, well, Draupadi has awakened the Pandavas, she's awakened the son, the, the children of Draupadi, but that's not all. When a king mar marries a princess, he gains allies in the forms of in-laws. Now, some in-laws are good and some not so good in real life. Uh, but in this case, Draupadi brings really, really awesome in-laws. And I want to talk about them, because these are big hitters also. The first one is father-in-law. Drupada, who represents extreme dispassion towards sense pleasures. Because the rising Kundalini is so blissful, as Yogananda said, that sense pleasures start seeming like stale cheese. And so as the energy rises up, you gain an ally in the form of a father-in-law, Drupada. Naturally, you start de developing extreme dispassion towards sense enjoyments. It's not an effort. Then there's brothers-in-law. So she brings one brother-in-law who's named Drishtadyumna. He's the, uh, the primary general of the Pandava army and he represents the inner light of intuition. He slays Drona, who's our habits, our habits which keep us bound. We can't meditate, we can't get up, oh, I do the same thing every day. Well, as soon as the Kundalini starts rising, this calm light of intuition, this is what Drishtadyumna represents, starts awakening within us and we start living our life more by inner guidance. And then she has one more brother-in-law. He again is a very, very important character. This one's called Shikhandin. 
and he represents the power and understanding to perform only uplifting actions. And his primary role is to uh, put Bhishma out of action. Bhishma represents the ego. The ego can't fight against the power and understanding to perform only uplifting ac actions because they are ego defeating. And so in the, in the actual battle, one warrior has to be in one chariot. But Arjuna can't slay Bhishma that way. He can't defeat him, it's too powerful. So breaking all the laws of war, he asks Shikhandin to hop in because he knows Bhishma can't shoot his arrows at Shikhandin. And then together, they wound Bhishma by their arrows. So Arjuna represents fiery self-control. That merged with the power to perform uplifting actions requires self-control, not easy, is what wounds uh, Bhishma. Now Bhishma, the ego, has the boon that he can not be killed. He, he has to give up his own life. Icha Mrityu, that's what they call it. You can choose your death. And even though he's grievously wounded, he can no longer fight, he makes a very fascinating statement. He says, I'll only leave my body when the kingdom is safe, the war has ended, and the sun has moved north. As if, you know, he's looking for some astrological portents. And Yogananda said, no, the body, the kingdom is our kingdom of consciousness. It has to be safe. The Pandavas have to win. And the sun has to move north. The sun of our consciousness has to be settled in the brain. That's when the ego gives up its precedence. Again, self-realization is so very important. And I know, I must say, that I'm going over quite a few things here. But if you want the whole details, Nayaswami Gyandev is going to launch a course on the Bhagavad Gita in three months. Or go to your local center, because this is such a central uh, theme of our Guru's work. There's always something to learn by studying the Bhagavad Gita. But coming back, this is where, now think of yourself. You are aligned on the spiritual path with all the awakened Pandavas, the lights and the sounds of the chakras, calm inner light, extreme dispassion towards sense pleasures and the ability to perform only uplifting actions, will the spiritual path be drudgery? Will it be extreme effort where you have to push yourself to do the right things? No. And this is why, again, we have to work with these inner energies. It's not enough to just work on our psychological traits. Those ha that has to be done. It's not just inner work, but we have to bring out a higher power. And I realized this anew this morning as I was ironing my shirt. <laughs> because, you know, our, our personality can be thought of as this, this uh, shirt with all the creases. Those creases are the personality kinks that we are trying to iron out. Now, if I just move the iron without any heat in it, it's not going to do any good. It requires that heat, the power to transform. That comes by working with the chakras and the kundalini. The spine and the brain are the altars of God. This is where the power of God resides in its greatest glory, and it has to be drawn upon. But if I heat the iron up and I never move it, uh, I, I wouldn't be wearing this kurta, let's say, because there would be a big hole in it. And this is what happens if we just meditate, meditate, meditate. We develop imbalance. 
that heat has to be used in the right way to do what it's supposed to do, which is to free us from ego consciousness. And that happens when we take the heat of the Kundalini or the power here and we apply it, which happens through service, interaction with people, projects, which bring all our kinks, personality kinks to the fore. We apply this heat to all of them one after the other and then the kinks start getting ironed out. But if we just say we are going to practice uh, something that will raise the Kundalini, it does not accomplish its purpose. So I want to read here something that uh, Swami Kriyananda wrote on this topic. This is from the essence of the Bhagavad Gita because we can't become self-realized unless we raise the Kundalini. And we can't raise the Kundalini unless we work with the chakras and use techniques such as Kriya Yoga, etc. But it has to be done in the right way. And Swamiji has given here one of the best explanations I have read. So I want to read it for all of us. And he says, Kundalini can be awakened by yoga practices. If, however, those practices are not accompanied by a corresponding purification of the ego, they can raise more energy to the medulla oblongata, this is the seat of the ego, than the ego is prepared to send forward to the spiritual eye in the self-offering known as inner yagya. So there's more, a lot of energy raised here, but it's not sent to the spiritual eye. This excessive energy then forms a vortex around the thought of ego, creating an imbalance of awareness. And the yogi cannot maintain his heightened state, but falls back again toward the base of the spine. Yogananda made it clear that the raising of the Kundalini force must be accompanied by conscious purification of the heart's feelings, which is where Jitendra's part will be so important. And then Swami writes something that's staggering to me because he uses the word the most important part. And then he says, the most important part of the Kundalini awakening depends indeed on kindness, generosity, truthfulness, and all the basic virtues recognized as such in every true religion. So he's not saying working with the Kundalini through meditation practices is the most important part. Staggering, isn't it? He's saying the most important part depends on kindness, generosity, truthfulness, and all the basic virtues recognized as such in every true religion. So the path to self-realization and working with the Kundalini and the chakras is an inner, outer path. When we are practicing these qualities, we are working with the Kundalini and the chakras. And when we are practicing high techniques of meditation, we are working with the Kundalini and the chakras. There's nothing else to work with. It's the only way where all bypaths of self-realization meet. And remember, I want to end with this, the goal is not to allow the energy to rise and fall, like the earth uh, goes towards the galactic center, reaches high states, Satya Yuga, and then comes back and falls crashing into Kali Yuga. We don't want to do that. We want to keep our consciousness forever and forever in the brain. And that comes by following this path of self-realization that our Guru Paramahansa Yogananda brought. So I want to invite Jitendra now, and he'll talk about the heart. Thank you, Sagar, for opening our hearts. <clears throat> Makes my job a little easier up here. 
So good morning, everyone. So of the heart, which indeed is the pivotal point in the journey of self-realization, we can either get lost in the heart or we can find that which we've always been seeking. And the fact that this is the pivotal point in the journey of self-realization is it's a good thing because this is where the battle of light and darkness escalates. And this is a good thing because we can become more easily aware of this, these patterns of energy, the habits, and what comes from energy dropping down from the heart, producing sorrow, uh, restlessness, anxiety, everything else that comes when our energy drops from the heart. Because we can, as we become aware of this energy and the patterns of the flow of energy, we can work on changing that. And so God has gifted us uh, a very precious gift, the fact that this is the center of chitta, which Swami Kriyananda said is the feeling aspect of consciousness. And so energy in the heart is either moving upwards toward the brain, toward God, toward the higher chakras, and as a result of this, we feel that unity, we feel divine love, we feel divine joy. And we begin to feel in some way, as Sagar was mentioning, we start to enter that, you know, that highway. We can really feel that grace that is supporting our efforts. And if, but if energy is dropping downwards from the heart, of course, then we feel the corresponding consciousness to that, which is sorrow and restlessness and all these things that keep us bound. And so the good news, as I like to think of in the Bhagavad Gita, when it said, be of good cheer, we have everything we could ever ask for and more to win this battle. And Swami Shiyakteshwar shares that love may be cultivated, and in that cultivation, it begins to develop. And it develops to that point in which we receive the blessings of the Guru. We receive the Guru's Diksha. And this is the point on the spiritual journey where we begin to become baptized by the Guru's blessings, the Guru's consciousness. And in that blessing, we begin to feel that process deepening of the purification of the heart. Why and how is this so? Because the guru, when the guru enters, the guru is only interested in one thing and will be by our side to the very end until we are, until we're liberated, until we're one with God. And so that light and blessings of the guru and it, that enters our heart, begins to purify us. It begins to accelerate our spiritual evolution toward God. And Swami Shukteshwar said that spiritual advancement doesn't come from yogic powers, but it comes from the, the uh, heart growing toward uh, ever-increasing maturity. And in this way, it happens in stages. And so in the holy science, in 
the third chapter, aptly called The Procedure, which I often like to joke with friends that so often on the spiritual path that it feels like we're in a constant state of open heart surgery. <laughs> and so he defines this chapter as the procedure. And he outlines these stages of maturity of the heart. And these are the dark heart, the propelled, the steady, the devoted, and the clean heart. And this can be applied, of course, to our, our, our lifetime beyond that, but also we can bring this down to our day-to-day, -day, our hour-by-hour, moment-to-moment, as we look within and we feel, where is my energy flowing? Is it flowing upwards toward God or in expanding, or is it releasing downwards? And so the first is the dark heart, and this is the uh, the essence of the dark heart is saturated in material consciousness, seeking a fulfillment outside in the material world. At the lowest level, there is evil, but most of uh, the consciousness in the dark heart is just there's no desire for truth. There's no desire to want to get to know the, the purpose of life or the purpose of this world. I often like to think of the dark heart as yogis seek bliss, and the dark heart seeks ignorance is bliss. <laughs> and, but this really is the essence of the dark heart. And it reminds me of a joke that uh, there was a teacher who wanted to prove that one of his students was a slacker. So he asked his student to stand up, and he said, what is the definition of ignorance in apathy? And the student looked at the teacher and said, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> and this is the essence of the dark heart. <laughs> and so what brings us out of this stage? You know, and sometimes we wake up on the wrong side of the bed, so to say, and we, we may feel that consciousness within us. But what, what propels us out of the dark heart? This, most of the time, is suffering. And as our guru said, that anguishing monotony, which for most of us brought us on the spiritual path, but also as we look inwardly in our day-to-day -day actions, our thoughts, and what's going on within, we also, isn't it so that we can slip into that perhaps a uh, lighter form of anguishing monotony, if we start to find ourselves getting in these habitual uh, patterns of behavior, and we start to lose inspiration, this is an alarm that we should listen to that, and then we need to put forth the energy required to move from that place into uh, higher expressions. And so the next uh, stage is the propelled heart. And just even a little bit of light begins to illuminate the dark heart. Uh, our guru had a very beautiful quote, as he would say that a cave can remain in darkness for 10,000 years or two months. The moment that a match is lit, it becomes illuminated. And so this is where we begin to focus on light in the form of positive thinking, in the form of our meditation. Uh, everything we do, we begin to open the heart upwards 
to in some way open the curtains to our window to allow that light to enter more and more. And this is in this stage of the propelled heart is where we begin to seek truth. We begin to want to experience for our own self that essence of our connection with this divine presence, this connection of divine love. And also to release doubt. And as Swami Kriyananda shared with us that once he was in uh, at the uh, desert retreat with our guru, and he said that he was trying to dissolve that sense of doubt, which he, f he knew was blocking his ability to open his heart further to his guru. And he said that he found himself there at the desert and he knew, let's say by the weather forecast, that the, you know, the weather in Los Angeles was you know, sunshine and 90 degrees and beautiful. But if his guru said it was raining in Los Angeles, he still had that doubt to say, well, I don't know. The Swamiji reminded us the, the best way to dissolve doubt is by love. And so the more that we offer our hearts to our guru, offer our hearts to Divine Mother, offer our hearts to each other in acts of kindness, small ways and big ways, it begins to release that hold of doubt that has on the heart, keeping it closed, keeping the intellect involved a little bit too much in that process. And we know in our teachings that the three uh, main uh, motivations of the heart, um, the three longings of the heart is existence, consciousness, and bliss. And so our hearts are seeking that bliss. Ananda, Ananda, every time I see our logo, every time uh, I see Ananda, it's a good reminder, bliss. Bliss is what we are seeking. And we will never be satisfied until we experience that contentment of the heart in that experience of ever-increasing love, as Jyotishan Devi mentioned yesterday, this ever-new joy. When we start to feel this, it becomes easier for us to trust the guidance of the Guru, trust the guidance of Divine Mother, and we open our hearts more and more. And one of the most beautiful quotes that I really love is of St. Augustine, where St. Augustine said that to the Lord, you have made us for thyself, and our hearts will be restless until they find rest in thee. So let us try to remember this. And so as I started to reflect more on this, what came to my mind was something that I think we all know very much, as perhaps we've heard this thousands of times, of Sheikh Teshwar's quote that, the devotee cannot take one step on the spiritual path without first cultivating the natural love of the heart. But then I started to ask the question, well, what's the next step? <laughs> and so when reading the holy science, it was very interesting. He speaks of the Sanskrit word shraddha, which means the intensification of the heart's natural love. And this is where we are, and this is what we need to continue this ever-increasing intensification of that yearning of the heart to want to get to know God, to want to offer ourselves more fully in that flow of grace, in our meditation, in our service. And Sri Yukteswar said that from this process of shraddha, om 
naturally becomes manifest. We begin to experience that vibration of Om in the heart, as Sagar was mentioning, the power of Om, that as we tune into that pristine vibration, then uh, all of these other uh, you know, challenges that we have psychologically, physically, everything, our karma, it all becomes dissolved in that, that still and constant presence of divine love. There's a quote from Christ that I wanted to read. Christ said, the comforter who is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. And so th this is that the nature of this chitta in the heart has divine memory, it has smriti, but it also has a memory of our karma and our desires and attachments. And so the more we intensify this upward flow of energy in the heart, the more that we begin to open to this remembrance that we are one with God, that we are divine sons and daughters of our beloved. And so, how do we awaken this devotion? One of the things that it's important for us to find fun ways to uh, have our, uh, this spiritual journey with our guru, with Divine Mother, of learning. You know, we're all here to learn. And use every example that we can to remember to focus at the point between the eyebrows and feel the energy in the heart rising upwards. And I just recently found another good example where something that we often are uh, aggravated by is the uh, beloved mosquitoes. And so this was a couple of weeks ago where I was outside and I was bit up quite a bit. And it just becomes so itchy. And there's a sense of gratification when you itch. And then I was just curious of why that is. Well, I, this is a very helpful reminder, as also our guru said, that these things in this world are God's way of making sure that we're continuing our journey toward him. And so with mosquitoes, you know, you itch, you itch the mosquito bite, and what happens? It becomes more and more itchier because it becomes more and more inflamed. And so I thought, what a great reminder. Every time I get bit by a mosquito, that just the same for our, our heart's devotion. The more we feed that fire in our heart, the more coal that we put in that inner sanctuary, the more that we'll be able to ignite that flame and burn all of those obstructions. Of course, a lot of this is the Guru's grace. Our job is to get the coal in there. But as our Guru, I love this saying of our Guru, as he said, the charcoal doesn't become red by itself. But when the fire enters, it all becomes red and glowing. And so this is that process as we open more and more to remember that we have to ever be watchful of our energy of the heart expanding. We move onward to the steady heart and a very helpful uh, quote from our Swami Kriyananda once said that when the light comes, it heralds a higher consciousness. And the higher this consciousness, the more complete the inner change. And so we enter the steady heart where really we enter that willingness to battle the light and dark, to be open to that process of purification 
that's necessary for us to keep purifying those obstacles that stand in the heart's way of opening fully and offering our energy upwards. This is the importance of the guru-disciple relationship. Our sadhana becomes the center point of this process of keeping our energy in the heart moving upwards. And the more that we completely surrender to the guru in that trust, in that openness, the more that the guru helps us in this stage of keeping steadfast, where so often we can get caught by our habits, our attachments and desires, but that's where it's our responsibility to, as soon as we see ourselves straying from that, that point of stillness, that point of feeling connected to the guru, this is where we have to bring ourselves back again and again and do whatever we need to do, whatever comes our way to be used as a way to propel us forward. A beautiful quote that I wanted to also extend a little more on this topic where Anandamoy Ma shared that uh, he who is one with me, I am one with him. For he who wants to know me, I am very, very near. And he who does not know me, I'm a beggar before him. And so one other helpful tip to keep our hearts steadfast in this, this upward flow, in this openness and trust to surrender more to God and Guru in this life, is to also remember that no matter how much we may strive of wanting to be free, to feel that communion with the divine, just the same, the Guru, Divine Mother, God wants you so much more than you can imagine of even wanting God. And so, try to remember this. When you sit to meditate, or if your heart starts to get uh, caught in whirlpools, and we begin to lose that motivation and desire to want to, to rise upwards, remember that just behind that, your failure, just behind your frustration, is that deep longing from Divine Mother, from the Guru, of wanting to embrace you, wanting to free you. So just this little switch can really help in so many ways. The other thing that Swami Kriyananda shared is that by through the intensification of moving energy through the Irda and the Pingala, so or for uh, for Kriya Bonds or for those who are practicing meditation who are beginners, practicing measured breathing, moving the energy in the spine, that equal count breathing. So intensifying this current of energy that's moving in the spine will help us uh, steadfast in this journey of keeping the heart as Swami and many others have depicted the heart as a lotus. And the more that the lotus opens its uh, you know, its energy, its beauty upwards, we begin to experience this love, we experience this connection. And so intensifying, moving this energy helps us along the way. I remember that uh, when I was in India, I visited uh, Dakshinishwar uh, to the Kali Mandir there, which was very, uh, very sweet. And 
uh, I remember I didn't know who Sri Ramakrishna was at all, uh, but I, I, of course, discovered him there, uh, Dakshinishwar, and read a little bit from the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. And what I read in there, which came to mind, which really, I think, reflects this stage of the devoted heart, is he had a conversation with Swami Vivekananda, and he said, look here, my boy, the God is the ocean of bliss. Don't you want to plunge in that ocean? Suppose that there is a cup filled with syrup and you were a fly. Where would you sit to sip the syrup? And Vivekananda's answer was, well, I'll sit on the edge of the cup and I'll stick my head out and I'll sip the syrup. And his reply was, why would you sit on the edge of the cup? And his, Vivekananda's response was, because if I went into the syrup, I would drown and lose my life. And this is our life. This is this process of being ever increasingly willing to start on the small things in our day to day of letting go Letting go of that control that the ego has, making sure that everything is just perfect in our life and that things are going the way that you want them to go. Starting with small things, but then increasingly working up further and further to the point where we can surrender at our altar, at the feet of the Guru, and we can say, Lord, change no circumstances in my life. Change me. And that we no longer even seek anything from the Guru, except his love, except for Divine Mother's love. And never focus on your, your faults or your mistakes along this journey, because our Guru reminded us that God only wants our love. He doesn't mind our mistakes. He only minds our indifference. And there's a good, as we continue to try to devote ourselves ever increasingly on this spiritual path, there's a great story of a, a disciple, direct disciple of Yogananda. His name was Horace. And he was in the Phoenix Center, and he was a, an assistant to the minister there. And he had multiple sclerosis, and just in a lot of pain. And he couldn't do a lot of things due to this. And the minister in Phoenix was wondering and praying to Master, why did, doesn't Master bless him and heal him from this, you know, horrible uh, condition. And just as this minister was thinking of this master came and said, isn't it wonderful that in this lifetime, Horace is burning all of that karma that came and caused this, caused his multiple sclerosis. Isn't it wonderful? And it dissolved that, that sense of that personal agenda. In so the life of Horace was such a beautiful example of this devoted, the devoted life as a disciple, where even at the end of his life, he was in Encinitas. And it is said that he would be found laying on his stomach on the lawn, pulling weeds one by one. So beautiful. So let's not focus on our faults, let's not focus on all those little shortcomings that we bump up against and we feel discouraged. And when we feel discouraged, the energy drops. And then we have to, we have to do our battle, we have to battle. The battle of Kurukshetra is always happening within us. So 
Do whatever you can, but every day find something that you can do to offer yourself to the Guru. Start with your meditation. Start with prayer. Start with serving others, giving your heart more in love and kindness to others. And when we do this, the heart, it becomes more and more fixed in that awakening awareness and memory that we are free, that we are divine children. I wanted to close just briefly on this last stage of the clean heart. And this is where the heart is purified. It becomes that perfect reflection of God's love. And in this week's focus of uplift ourselves and uplift the world, any step that we take to expand our hearts, to open to that process of purification, we begin to have more power to share that love with others. And in this state of the clean heart, which we should all practice every day, love is patient, love is kind. Practice unconditional love. It's all a practice, but it's, the more that we can bring ourselves in alignment with that every day, the more that our hearts will feel more and more one with God. And Swami Kriyananda, you know, for me and for many of us, was such a perfect reflection of how powerful a clean heart truly is. Attuned, oneness with the Guru, oneness with God. And I wanted to share uh, two things about this. And so, reflecting on Swamiji, reflecting on our own life, Master said these words, and I invite you to really take this in. Let us be not afraid to love our dear ones, foolishly fearing to lose them in the midst of death. Love them so dearly, so truly, so purely, in forever, even in temporary love, kindly separation that you find in them the everlasting true love of God. Finding divine love, you will find beneath its canopy all your loved ones of all incarnations, and in that you will embrace not only them, but everyone. And this is Swamiji's life. He loved everyone. And I experienced, I wanted to share this one personal story that when I was in India, uh, I had the blessing of receiving uh, typhoid as a form of diksha from my guru. And I was very, very sick. And the battle of Kurukshetra was raging on all levels. And uh, I was really struggling spiritually, emotionally, everything. And it was Thanksgiving. And there was a small group of us having Thanksgiving dinner with Swamiji. And we were there on this uh, little kitchen area. It was perhaps around 30 of us or so. And Swamiji, who he pulled up in his car, not too far, you know, from perhaps uh, from me to the front row here. And Swamiji got out and he, he was carried by uh, Narayan and Sergio. And uh, he, there were 30 of us standing there, just so happy to see Swamiji. And as Swamiji was coming, he was just looking at all of us. And there was a moment, boom, this just explosion in my heart with this feeling of the absolute certainty of God's love came into my heart as a blessing from Swamiji. And everything, everything that I was suffering from disappeared.
And I tell you this not for my own, you know, blessing, but this is the life dedicated to God, as Swamiji was, as we dive into that ocean and we lose ourselves in that love and that bliss, that wherever we go, that God and Divine Mother will flow through you in the, the miracles and the beauty that will unfold from the power of this love flowing through your heart can change so many lives. And I wanted to close with this, these words from our Guru. So I invite you to close your eyes and feel that this is our Guru, your Divine Mother, God, speaking directly to you. Without speaking a word, I have loved you always. I alone can truly say, I love you. For I loved you before you were born. My love gives you life and sustains you even at this moment. And I alone can love you after the gates of death imprison you. You were none. Not even your greatest human lover can reach you. I am the love that dances human puppets on strings of emotion and instincts to play the drama of love on the stage of life. My love is beautiful and endlessly enjoyable when you love it alone. But the lifeline of your peace and joy is cut when you instead you become entangled in human emotion and attachment. My children, it is my love for which you yearn. Om Guru. I'd like to invite Yandev Ji up. So in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to stand up and stretch. However, when I was thinking about this, I thought, why just have people do any old stretch? Why not do something that is tied in with my topic, which is the spiritual eye, specifically living from the spiritual eye. And not only that, but have them do something that would be sort of a, a mini remedial Ananda yoga class. So uh, what we're going to do is the full yogic breath flow. Now, I know that most of you in this room uh, know this. You have practiced it before. And I'm equally confident that most of you in this room have not practiced it in years, if not decades. <laughs> so, just to refresh your memory on this, it's in the art and science of Raja Yoga. All we're doing is, I'll demonstrate it without talking because I don't have a mic on me. Don't forget the most important part of it, which is not bending forward and coming up, it is using the natural magnetism of the hands to move, help to move energy through the body, to draw fresh vitality into the body as we inhale and stretch up, then to offer it, offer it back to its source. The Gita says that, that if, you, if you just receive, don't give back, you're a thief. You're a thief and really feel like you're giving that energy back to God as you offer it up. And then when you come down, feel like you're wiping away any restlessness, any anxieties, just cleansing yourself. So we're going to first energize the hands so that we can feel that better. 
But one thing to keep in mind, the hands are moving as close to the body as possible without touching it, without touching it. Because if you touch the body, if you touch the clothes, what happens is the gross sensation of that physical uh, touch will overshadow the subtle awareness of energy, which is what you're really trying to focus on. So let's stand up. And let's just very briefly energize the hands. Tense the arms, squeeze them, and release them. And squeeze again, and release. One more time. Okay, now rub one bare forearm with the other hand. And then the other. And then rub both hands together. And then close the eyes and just separate the hands slightly and then bring them closer together and feel that little subtle sense of magnetic repulsion between the hands, pushing them apart. It's just evidence of the magnetism of the hands. And let's do kind of a mini version of the full yogic breath flow. Just bring the hands in front of the base of the spine, the base of the astral spine. And as you inhale, bring the hands up through the torso up to the spiritual eye only. Just to the spiritual eye, not all the way. And then exhale, smooth down to the base of the spine. Just take a couple breaths this way. Try to concentrate, see if you can feel the effect on the energy in the spine due to the magnetism of the hands. One last time. And now let's take that through the entire body. Regular inhalation with an exhalation. Relax into a comfortable forward bend. You might want to bend your knees slightly if that's any stress on your spine. And now coming up, the hands almost touching the body. Draw energy up through the entire body and offer it back to God. And as you exhale, slowly bring the hands down, just almost touching the body, cleansing the body. And once again, inhaling up, drawing that vitality up to the spiritual eye and beyond. Just offer it back to infinity one more time. Very consciously draw the energy up through the body. Hold the top a little extra. Just hold the breath. Stay up there. Just offering yourself completely to the light. And then exhaling, relaxing arms down, and you can be seated once again. Well, I've been reading a lot recently for uh, reading the essence of the Bhagavad Gita, in part for preparation for the course we're giving in October, but uh, more just because I love the book so much. And early in the book, Swami points out something very, very interesting. Um, it struck, strikes me every time I read it, which is that every true spiritual path has something in common with every other true spiritual path, and that is that the way you get to the destination is by bringing energy into the spine and up to the spiritual eye. Every path, even the path where people don't even talk about or know about energy, if they're going to get to the final destination, 
they're going to have to bring the energy into the astral spine, up the spine, to the spiritual eye. That's just how we're made. That's just how it works. And the other part of it is that, of course, suggests all of yoga, because yoga is very, very much about bringing energy into the spine and up to the brain. And that can make it sound like it's very mechanical. Okay, just energy. I know how to do energization. Okay, I can move energy here or there. I can bring it up to here and I'll be done, right? Uh, yes, you would be, if you could. But there are a few problems with that, a few reasons that it's more difficult than it is just to say those words. The first one being that you don't even have access to all your energy. It's amazing how much energy is out of our control. Think of not just your daily obligations that take energy, but your desires, your desire to, to accomplish this or acquire that or not have this other thing, but also your regrets about the past, your worries about the future. All of those are drains, are losses of energy. And as many of you know, especially those who do not live at Ananda Village, um, your environment doesn't always help you with this. There are lots of environments that really draw your energy down. In fact, there are people who make a living trying to draw your energy down because they sell a product that they want you to want. But that's not, those two are not even the biggest issues. The biggest issue is probably the fact that your karma has claimed most of your energy because it's circling around in little vortices in your spine, little vrittis corresponding to every single desire you have ever had in any incarnation that has not been resolved, either by being satisfied or being dissolved by spiritual practices. All of that is occupying your energy. And then, as if to add insult to injury, there's one more big factor, and that's that when fresh energy comes into your body, okay, I can really do something with that. What happens? It gets hijacked by your habits. Your habits just say, this is the way it's always been, so I guess this is the way you always want it. And it just takes that energy and puts it where you're accustomed to putting it. And that's not the worst either. <laughs> Because it's not just working physically, if you want to use that term, physically, with energy, but it's also attitude. Swami would often say, right attitude is the most important factor on the spiritual path. And even that is not enough, because ultimately it's God's grace that is going to get all of our energy to the point between the eyebrows. So although it can be said easily, the process takes a while. As most of us have experienced by now, it's not an overnight process. But there's a lot we can do, a lot we can do. And I really want to put another ad out here for Ananda Yoga, because if, you, if a person knew nothing about yoga, had never heard of energy, energy was never even mentioned, if they did the practice, they would end up 
with more energy at the spiritual eye than they had when they began, because that is the way Swami has designed the practice. In fact, I'm going to, I've recently created a, a handout, a very big handout, with lots of links to free videos, uh, most of them to Ananda Yoga videos, and I'm going to make sure everybody gets sent that, because I think it's a real wonderful resource for specific ways that we can work with changing the distribution of awareness in the body, lifting it up, lifting the energy up toward the spiritual eye. So, also, a very simple practice that Master said he practiced when he was a boy in Sri Teshwar's ashram. And that was, he would simply keep his gaze lifted and his eyes, his eyes open, even if he was doing things, and his attention on the spiritual eye all the time. He said it's the fastest way to grow spiritually. Isn't that interesting? I remember the first time I ever met someone who was making a lifestyle of this. It was a little bizarre, because he was, he was talking with a group of us, and constantly his eyes were just totally up, even though he was saying things to us, he was not <laughs> looking at us, and it was a little, I knew, I knew what he was doing, and so it wasn't too strange, but I thought, this is not something you do every day. But the more we can at least keep our attention here, even if we need to not have our gaze upturned like that, it's a wonderful practice for bringing energy to the spiritual eye. But here's another one that when I first heard about it, I was a little taken aback. And that is to concentrate in the medulla oblongata. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute, the medulla oblongata, the base of your brain, and this is not the physical medulla, which is a very important part of your physical anatomy, but the astral medulla oblongata, which is the seat of ego. It's also the, the way through which life force enters a body. Primarily, we, we get uh, life force also through food, water, air, sunlight, but the body has to distill spirit from that. I guess either that wasn't funny or you all are so pure <laughs> <laughs> that you don't know what distilled spirits are. <laughs> But through the, <laughs> through the medulla comes undistilled spirit, pure life force. Now, Larry Mahashaya said, if you want to get energy to the spiritual eye, first thing you do, concentrate in the medulla oblongata. And I don't know about you, but when I, when I first read that, I've been thinking, well, I thought I was always supposed to concentrate at the spiritual eye. But the way Swami explained this, he said that, that most people, their ego consciousness is distributed vaguely through the body. And what is it that you use that enables you to concentrate? Well, unless you're a master, it's your ego consciousness that's going to enable you to concentrate. So the first step is to gather your resources, 
gather the, the powers that are going to enable you to concentrate, enable you to send energy, to send awareness forward to the point between the eyebrows from the medulla oblongata. That's very interesting. Next time you, you meditate, and when you go into the expansion uh, stage of meditation, especially when you set aside techniques, no longer doing any techniques, and you're just gazing at the spiritual eye rather than just charging for it, check first, do I have all my resources available to me? Maybe I need to collect my ego consciousness a little bit more in the medulla and then send my concentration forward to the point between the eyebrows. It's a, it's a wonderful practice. I've been playing a lot with that recently. And uh, although pride doesn't want, doesn't want to think that we need the, the medulla oblongata to do this, it, at least for me, and Swami suggested it, and more than that, Larry Mahasha suggested it, it works. Give it a try. Now, another very simple practice that, again, most of you have practiced at one time or another, and most of you have long forgotten it, but it's really an easy practice. It's a wonderful way to bring energy to the point between the eyebrows, to the spiritual eye, to our highest chakra, aside from the crown chakra, which Master said, we're not going to work with that. It's only when we get our energy to the spiritual eye that a channel opens up from the spiritual eye to the, the seventh chakra, and energy can actually flow to there. In the meantime, our job is to get energy to the spiritual eye. Very simple practice. We're going to do it in three breaths. I'll just explain it, and then we'll do it together. Because we're going to use a breath, the breath as a magnet, the inhalations as a magnet to draw energy up the spine to the brain. Now, as we, most of us know, every time you inhale, energy comes up to the spiritual eye. Every time you exhale, it goes back down. But if you engage your willpower, you can draw more energy along with that, which you might say naturally occurring rising energy bring even more energy up to the brain. So we're going to take a long, slow inhalation. We'll hold the breath for 12 counts, long, slow exhalation. Next breath, same thing, but 25 counts. Next breath, same thing, 40 counts. If that gets too long, just do a count that works for you. But now you all, you all just, I know you all focused your forces in the medulla oblongata, so you've got that going for you still, right? You kept it there. Because every time the energy goes through that point, use that. Use the ego consciousness for what it's good for, which is pass it on. Pass the energy on up to the spiritual eye. So let's try it. Just sit up tall, close the eyes, lift the gaze toward this point between the eyebrows. And let's do a smooth, slow inhalation. Make it a full one. And now hold the breath, 12 counts. Slowly exhale. Draw it out, make it nice and smooth. 
And another smooth, slow inhalation. And as that energy passes through the medulla, really grab onto it and, and move it forward to the spiritual eyes who hold the breath for 25 counts. And slowly exhale. This is where you found out if you held the breath too long. So if you need to hold it longer, less, less time in the next breath, please feel free. Next inhalation again. With your will, draw energy up the spine along with the natural inhalation. Bring that energy through the medulla all the way to the spiritual eye. Hold the breath, 40 counts. Halfway. And slowly exhale. But keep your awareness at the spiritual eye. Eyes still closed, gaze upturned, and just enjoy it. Don't make it an effort of all about willpower. You just do it with an attitude of joy that naturally brings energy up to the spiritual eye. Whatever you do with joy is going to bring energy to that area. Such an important thing to keep in mind, such an easy thing to forget. So let's open the eyes once again and take one more step. And that is not just bringing energy to the spiritual eye, like we're stockpiling it, but to live from the spiritual eye. Master said that a realized master performs all actions from the spiritual eye. Ordinary people perform their actions from ego consciousness, from the medulla. Well, we're all extraordinary people. All right? So we may not be realized masters yet, but we can practice this to help us move toward that state of realization. And it's not a difficult thing to practice. In fact, I'm going to suggest an exercise right now where we can practice living from the spiritual eye. I'm going to invite you to gaze at one of the masters here behind me. I'll try to get shorter here so that I don't, <laughs> I don't block the, the view too much. And if you're too far back to really get a decent view of the masters, look at the spiritual eye up there. Or perhaps we can get the video camera trained on one of the close-up of one of the masters. And just begin to gaze at it, not just with your physical eyes, but with the spiritual eye. Feel just an intensity of awareness, not strain, not stress, just intensity of awareness radiating from the spiritual eye until whatever the physical eyes are doing starts to become irrelevant. They almost, you know, physically, it almost gets dimmer, perhaps, as the inner experience gets stronger. You begin to awaken that intuitive perception so that the connection 
You form a connection between yourself and the master, or between yourself and even the outward depiction of the spiritual eye. Just gaze with the spiritual eye. Nothing difficult about it except to remember to do it. But we can do this with another, with another faculty also, your sense of hearing. Can, we all hear through the physical ears. You can hear through the spiritual eye. Master used to taste through the spiritual eye when he was cooking so he could get just the right taste in the food. Let's try this. Close your eyes now and lift your gaze and hear from the spiritual eye. Try not to overemphasize what you're hearing through the physical ears. And instead of the linear engagement, when we're listening to something, we're listening to someone speak, feel a spherical engagement when you listen from the spiritual eye. It's like you're totally awake in the moment. Because this moment, this is the only place where God is. And you're in the place where God is. There's so many, so many ways to practice this. You can open the eyes or you can continue to keep the eyes closed. Either way, but we can practice living from the spiritual eye in so many ways. One of the, one of the easiest ways and most enjoyable ways is in your service. Because when you're in service, you're already somewhat or perhaps quite a bit detached from eco-consciousness because your focus is on giving. And you can more easily feel your actions just radiating from the spiritual eye. This is not difficult, except, as I said, it's difficult to remember often. But living from the spiritual eye is the most enjoyable, the most productive thing that we can do, and we can practice it anytime. And that's when we, we really can truly begin to uplift our consciousness. You know, I think that the prayer of this week is really the, what Master said was the highest prayer. He said, give me thyself, that I may give thee to all. And isn't that the same as uplift yourself and uplift the world? It's just in perfect harmony. And if we bring that into everything that we're doing, if we, if we try to express our higher qualities as our acting, express them from the spiritual eye. To give ourselves fully to what we're doing and in the process, do it in full partnership with God. We'll be living that prayer. And that's when God can help us the most. And that's when we can be most uplifted and when we can most help to uplift the world. <laughs>